We have three scriptures this morning, leapfrogging through the Gospel of Mark, and the first is at the very beginning, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, or as it says in many manuscripts, the note refers to it down at the bottom, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. Our second scripture comes about midway through the book in the eighth chapter. Many people have been trying to figure out who Jesus is, and Jesus asks his disciples in verse uh, 27, Who do people say that I am? And they reply, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asks, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And then finally, almost at the end of the book, Jesus is on the cross. And he dies. In verse 37 of chapter 15, it says this. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. I want to begin by thanking a fellow named Tim Mackey for opening my eyes to some key stuff I'm going to share with you today. Thank you, Tim, wherever you are. Uh, I want to make a small aside in the bulletin here. It says, as the worshiper sermon sparks any thought, question, or comment, please reply to Roger Nelson or call his cell. (laughs) And you're more than welcome to do that. But I do want to invite you to engage with me by responding. You could uh, email me at boswellt at hotmail.com, and that's in the church directory too, or you could text me at 708-601-3675. Or uh, you could put a comment under the YouTube video version of this. We, we, hope, uh, we hope that the uh, gifts, the pastor has some gifts to share today, but I think the Holy Spirit could do some serious crowdsourcing also. And there's something wonderful about, you might just say, here's what really hit me, or this wasn't clear to me, or Ted... Uh, speak up, or, you know, really, be honest, feel free to be frank. Pressures are the wounds of a friend, and I'm ready. That uh, will help me grow. But I, I encourage you to do that. And I also want to encourage you, if you're a young person sitting here today, to listen up, because when I make a sermon, I think about you, not just those bigger people. And uh, I think you can understand what I'm going to say today, and I would covet your feedback. It's one of the rare opportunities I have to covet from the pulpit and not sin. (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Old Sparky. Old Sparky was the name of the first electric chair that was used in America to execute people. If you've seen the movie The Green Mile, you have some idea how awful it might have been, how a person was strapped into it and huge amounts of electricity coursed through their body until they were dead. 
Some years ago, I got a grim black and white drawing of old Sparky and made small laminated copies of it. And then I and some high school friends about 20 years ago did an experiment. They hung them on a string, put them around their neck, and wore them for a day. Through the day with old Sparky. And as you can imagine, people would ask, what is that? To which they would reply, well, it's an electric chair for killing people. When further asked why they were wearing it, they would say, oh, it's a symbol of my religion. That answer, as you can imagine, led to some further questions, and they had an interesting day. Suppose we had a 10-foot-high electric chair here in the sanctuary today. That would be interesting, to say the least, perhaps more than interesting. I, you might not be surprised to hear, was going to hang a banner with an electric chair on it. But a friend, when I told them, uh, he was distraught, he was shocked, he was angry when he heard of it. Perhaps your reaction is uh, similar. So I didn't do it. The banner plan died, or dare I say, was executed. And all I have is a blank banner. Uh-oh. The necklace electric chairs were, and a, an electric chair banner would be, as you might imagine, substitutes for crosses. Crosses are pretty ubiquitous. They're found all over on buildings and in the media and as jewelry. Not so electric chairs. But the irony is, that an electric chair is far more gentle than a cross. It was, in fact, historically chosen from out of some 38 different ways of execution by a commission in 1887 because of problems that they had using hanging. The electric chair, whatever its shortcomings, was originally chosen as a more humane alternative to execution by hanging. But humane is exactly what a cross was not. It was designed to torture one slowly to death. I could list a dozen ways in which the cross was more horrific than the electric chair is. Yet crosses are all over the place, some of them quite large because they don't cause anyone to pause or recoil in shock about an instrument of torture and death, supposedly being a symbol of warmth and love and joy. So thoroughly has Jesus transformed the cross, in addition to its modern disuse, that you and I can barely access its raw emotional power as an instrument of horror. But when the gospel stories of Jesus were first written, oh, well, they knew all about it. They knew all about it. 
Paul called the cross and Jesus' death on it, quote, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. The idea that the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, would die such a shameful and horrific death was an it-does-not-compute kind of idea. We today have grown up with it, and we've heard it celebrated countless times, such that we can't really grasp how crazy it sounded at first. When people get old, as I will someday, they start talking about when I was young, and current young people want to run for the hills. Those old people remember times before cell phones and computers, when people computed things with a pencil and paper. They paid $10 for a three-minute phone call to California on a phone attached to a wall, and the draft could force you to go to Vietnam and maybe die, and a movie cost 35 cents and you could only see it in a movie theater. We walked three miles to school, uphill, both ways etc. For a young person, it's a weird world to think of. It's a little like the world of the Conestoga wagons crossing the prairie on the way west. Just something in a book. And that's where we all are when it comes to the cross and the crucifixion. At best, we've seen the grim crucifixion in the movie The Passion or read about details of the horror. But we are nowhere near that first century person who may well have personally seen people hanging on crosses, writhing in pain for hours or days while watching crowds mocked their slow death by torture. Maybe this morning we can look at the Gospel of Mark and see how he helped his first century readers come to grips with this challenge, with what was shocking, sometimes indigestible or unbelievable for them to confront. That the crucifixion of Jesus, rather than being a problem for him being God, was actually a proof that he was God. Perhaps imagining Jesus in an electric chair can help us to grasp, even to feel a little bit of the cross's emotional force and scandal 2,000 years ago. After we see what Mark said to those readers, we want to ask what that means for us now, 2,000 years later. Let's see what Mark does with this. Mark 1.1, the first verse we see this simple sentence. Here's the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Wow. Two staggering claims that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for for centuries, the promised one who would turn the world upside down. And, if you think you can't talk, the Son of God. Now, we're used to that. We, we don't know. If I stood up here today and said I was the Son of God, well, how close would you be to believing that? That's what was claimed for Jesus. Now notice, this is the first and the last and the only time in his whole gospel that Mark will tell us directly what he thinks. After this, after this, the whole rest of the gospel, he shows us what he would like us to know. It's like all those writing teachers who have advised their students to do so often. Show, don't tell. Second, Mark gives us the two fulcrums 
the two things on which his gospel pivots, right? These staggering claims of Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Let's see what he does with this. Right away, he plunges into eight chapters of stories about people trying to grapple with this strange character and who he is. Jesus the wonder worker, Jesus the mind-blowing teacher. Mark gives 18 miracles and alludes to many more. And he says Jesus doesn't teach like others. They were astounded because he taught with authority. Not like the scribes. They're trying to make sense of it. It's not unlike the spectrum of responses we might get today, I suppose. Jesus is a great teacher, or just a legend, or God, or an avatar, an imposter, or a fool, or a crutch, or maybe a manifestation of the God and Christ consciousness in all of us, or I don't know. Well, Mark walks us through the following stories, which tells you the sort of things they wrestled with back then when Jesus first showed up. He quotes Isaiah, where, G where Isaiah says, speaks of Jesus as the Lord in some sense. Then you have Jesus' baptism, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Aha, that's son of God stuff, right? Then a demon shows up and calls him the Holy One of God. But some teachers of the law call him a blasphemer, someone who has insulted God in a way that he is worthy of death. And some Pharisees come along and call him a hanger-outer with a riffraff, and even the scum of society as they saw it. Not everybody is seeing this the same way. Some looking to accuse him call him a Sabbath violator, which was also, for the Jews, worthy of death in that law. Some impure spirits come along and they call him Aha, the Son of God. But notice this. The Son of God stuff is coming either from heaven or from hell, from these demons. But no humans. Then there's Jesus' family. He said, uh, sorry, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. Finally, a way in which I remind people of Jesus. Teachers of the law from Jerusalem say he's possessed by Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. And the disciples themselves, after the storm is stilled, all they can say is, who is that guy? Who is that guy? Then the demons called Legion, a whole gang of them, they call him Son of the Most High again. And a hometown crowd says, miracles, schmiracles. This is just Mary's son. He's a prophet without honor. <sighs> Finally, after all of this, in chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give him yet a few more answers. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and hits a home run. The Messiah. All right, Peter. Remember Mark 1.1? 1, 1? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then right after that, Jesus says, now understand... As Messiah, I'm going to be rejected and suffer and die and rise again. Whoa, whoa, says Peter. No, 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 not that kind of Messiah. I'm talking about the Roman smackdown kind of Messiah. The clouds of glory kind of Messiah. The kind of Messiah we Jews have been longing for for centuries. You can read in the first century B.C. quotes where it says things uh, about a Messiah king who will destroy unrighteous rulers and purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles. They were on the outs. That's what Peter was excited about. 
But Jesus says in one of the most pungent and brief feedback anyone ever got, get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because he knows that as the Messiah, he must die. Now the story turns from Galilee, where all this has happened up in the north of Israel, to Jerusalem, where Jesus must die and where his disciples in the world have to come to grips with a Messiah who comes not to conquer, but to be crucified. What in the Flying Burrito Brothers kind of craziness is this? It was the wisdom of God, but to most people, foolishness. Well, that shows us how Mark begins to develop this theme of the Messiah and a suffering Messiah. But there's also this idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Remember? He said, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And he also develops this idea in a beautiful way. We'll see that the Messiah and Son of God come together at the end of Mark's story. Remember, these gospel writers are creative literary writers. They don't just write this stuff down hither, thither, and yon, the way you may write some of your papers. Sometimes they're just like the literature that you may analyze in high school or college, or instead of analyzing, suffer through. We can be grateful that just reading the Bible, it can speak straight to our heart by the Spirit of God. That's just a, what a blessing that is but it can also yield rich fruit when we study it carefully. So notice this. Mark first tells us the gospel is about Jesus, the Son of God, and then through the whole gospel until the very end, no human character, Jesus accepted, calls him the Son of God. Not Peter. No, Peter called him the Messiah, but not the Son of God. Demons, yes, they do call him the Son of God. Surprisingly, they have a clear inside track about who Jesus is. And it almost, but unfortunately not quite, scares the hell out of them, if I may use that phrase appropriately here. No humans. As we used to say in my Bible classes, coincidence? I think not. Now notice this. The Gospel of Mark is structured into three parts. Wow, sounds like a minister. Galilee, the trip to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem. Okay? In each of these parts, there's a key statement about Jesus as the Son of God. Coincidence? In the first part, in Galilee, right off the bat at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. This is the Son of God. That's who's speaking from heaven, right? God. This is my beloved Son. In the second part of Mark's story, on the way to Jerusalem, they have this experience where Jesus goes up on a mountain with three of his disciples, and he's transfigured. Next week is Transfiguration Sunday, special celebration of that. He becomes a shining, super white figure, and he has a conversation with Moses and Elijah, who, by the way, have been dead over 700 years. Nice trick if you can manage it. By the way, do the Gospels have great stories or what? Anyway, a voice comes from heaven, does this sound familiar? And says, this is my son whom I love. Right, the son of God, again. By the way, what do, what do Jesus, Elijah, 
and Moses talk about. One of the other Gospels tells us it was about Jesus' coming departure in Jerusalem, his exodus, his crucifixion. They're talking about that. But it really gets interesting in Jerusalem. Son of God at the baptism, Son of God at transfiguration. They get to Jerusalem. Jesus is framed by a crooked Jewish court and condemned by a crooked Roman governor. He's beaten, spit on, whipped, mocked, crowned with thorns and a purple robe on him to joke about him being a king. Then they strip him bare for more humiliation and nail him to a cross to die slowly while over his head is a mocking sign calling him king of the Jews. And a crowd catcalls and says to prove who he is by coming down off the cross. How ironic. Come down off the cross to prove who you are. Here is the Messiah proving his true character and mission, not by coming down off the cross, but by staying on the cross. As an old saying puts it, it was not the nails that held him to the cross. It was his love. This is the Messiah who was utterly counterintuitive against the expectations and dreams of so many back in the first century. The sky darkens for three hours as the earth itself goes into shock and there's an earthquake and Jesus dies. But wait, there's more. Remember how in each of the first two sections of the gospel there was a testimony from heaven that Jesus is the Son of God but no human saying it? Well, our last scripture today tells us of a human who did. At the cross, one of the climaxes in this gospel, when he sees how Jesus dies, the Roman centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. Or as John Wayne said as the centurion and king of kings, surely this was the Son of God. Wow, a human finally gets it. Is it a Jewish scholar? Is it one of the disciples? Maybe the Jewish ruling council? No, it's a Roman soldier who just executed Jesus. Mark announces at the very start that Jesus is the Son of God, but then in all Mark's gospel, the only ordinary person Jesus accepts, who sees and calls Jesus the Son of God and echoes the voice from heaven is right near the end of the gospel and it's a Roman soldier who sees it not in spite of Jesus' crucifixion but through his crucifixion. He sees how this man dies and says, surely this is the Son of God. And thus Mark in his creative literary way invites his original readers to see it that way too. He invites us and them to see the stupendous irony that the mocking soldiers with the purple robe and the crown of thorns and the king of the Jews sign actually got it right. Jesus' suffering turns out not to be a stumbling block to his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. It's the very proof of it. Friends, this morning we gather to worship and to cling to that Jesus but it is well if we try to remember what a shocking thing it was. And in doing so, I invite you to reflect on four things. First, remember the transforming power 
of Jesus. He could take an instrument of torture and make it the most widespread symbol of love on earth. If he can do that, do you think he can transform your broken and twisted and hurting heart? Do you think if you take up your own cross, as Jesus spoke of, or face your trials and failures and fears, do you think God can also use that transformatively? Yes, he can. Indeed, the transforming power of Jesus on the cross reminds us of hope and transformation yet to come. There is much that in this life is not fully healed, but it is a trustworthy saying that earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Second to reflect on, be open to learning from unexpected places and people. It was religious people killing Jesus that day, but a non-Jewish Roman soldier executing Jesus, whom no one expected to be their preacher that day. Who might you overlook? God still speaks to us in unexpected ways through unexpected people. Might you overlook children or atheists, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, old people or young, talk radio or NPR, someone from another religion? In the Bible, God once spoke through Balaam's jackass. Surely that widens the field of those from whom you might learn. <laughs> Third, for reflection, recognize what a unique and beautiful gift we have to share. People say all religions teach basically the same thing. How often I heard that in world religions classes, I taught it for 15 years. But where will you find God becoming real man and dying on a cross for our sins? Go ahead, look. Look at Islam, for example, the second largest religion in the world, one out of five of all the people on earth. Follow it. It respects Jesus greatly, but it emphatically denies that Jesus is actually God. And in a holy book, its holy book, the Quran, it says, quote, they killed Christ not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. Look in Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, the giant religions of our globe, or any other religion. Find where God came down and became one of us and died a horrific death for our sins. You won't find it. Not a God has wounds but Christ alone. If that is what we humans really need, there's only one option available on the market. Jesus. We have received good news no one else has. There is much discussion of privilege in our culture today. Learning about Jesus is an incalculable privilege. Stir up gratitude for that and lift it to God. And think of the many that don't know that comfort. There are millions and millions and millions next door and around the world who do not know. As my Japanese teacher once put it poignantly, I just never knew that God could love me personally. What a privilege and responsibility we have to share this good news, sharing it ourselves and through supporting others. You know, you, as part of the Christian Reformed Church, sent me to Japan for 15 years 
Because in Japan, only about 1% of the people have heard about Jesus and know him. Thank you for that. Fourth, for your final reflection, pray for those still wrestling with the cross. It may not be a scandal in the same ways as the first century, but oh, it causes many to stumble. For it calls a person to give up their self-rule, recognize their need, and kneel before Jesus on the cross. And autonomy, self-rule, is the golden calf that looms large in our modern Western world. Jesus died for my sins? Yep, that sounds just plain primitive. It sounds like snake handling and singing and swooning to many people. Here it is nicely expressed by a Wall Street hedge fund manager, Chris Arnade, who speaks for himself and many others. When I went to grad school, he says, for physics, I spent six years studying the big questions. I embraced the belief that humans can understand and figure out our world, and that there was no question too big that we couldn't solve, accepting an implicit arrogance in mankind's ability to rise above our surroundings. I was not alone. Most of us in the front row, by which he means cultural elites, had decided moral certainties and religion were suspect, and that all we could know or value was what science revealed to us to be quantifiable. Religion was often seen as an old irrational thing that limited and repressed people. Getting there to the idea of religion is true requires a level of intellectual humility that I am not sure I have. Pray for people like this. But there are also people who struggle with the cross for a different and nearly opposite reason. Some of us are here today. We worry, we doubt, we fear that we are not worthy of the cross or that our repeated failures and twisted and broken insides and history are too much to be healed or forgiven. But it is a trustworthy saying, says Paul, says God's word. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like us who are tempted to despair. So I close with a word especially for you if this is a struggle of yours. A word which also reminds us of how unique the execution of Jesus was. Here are four simple lines from a poem by Edward Shillito. This was from the World War I era when many people struggled to come to terms with that war's overwhelming death and suffering of millions. In his poem, Shilato speaks directly to Jesus. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. Not a God has wounds, but you alone. Let us pray. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Open our eyes, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Amen.